We come today to statement number four in our series through the PCA Ad Interim Committee's report on human sexuality. We come today to statement four on desire. And we began, we just dipped our toes into this topic last week and it, it ignited quite a conversation already, which is, which is good. I, I look forward to this. And just in case, I have not put out handouts five and six yet, but I do have them. So we may get to those. Um, but if we just, they go so well together, we'll probably have to get to them. So we'll, we'll get there. I'll hand those out as we get there. Um, just a reminder, as we're going through this study, our goal is to make sure that, um, really, I, I'm driven by this quote that I heard from, uh, from a lady in the Anglican church. She said, if the church doesn't tell us what our bodies are for. The culture certainly will. And so I think we need to be a church that talks about what God has made our bodies for. And today is going to touch on the aspect of sexuality that relates to our desires. And it's really easy as we talk about this to, um, to point I don't want to put it that way. To think of other struggles that that may be in some senses more egregious than ours, um, but but forget that this also speaks to our own to every single person's um, twisted desires, sexual desires. So um, let us just jump in and read the statement. <clears throat> And then I, I have some ref, uh, resources we can uh, flip to. Uh, we can also look at some footnotes and we can engage in discussion about this. So um, first of all, the first letter three at the beginning is totally unnecessary. I don't know what that's from. I think that was a copy and paste error. <clears throat> we affirm not only that our inclination towards sin is a result of the fall, but that our fallen desires are in themselves sinful. The desire for an illicit end, whether in sexual desire for a person of the same sex or in sexual desire disconnected from the context of biblical marriage, is itself an illicit desire. Therefore, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and put to death. I'm going to pause there. Nobody who wrote this statement would say this only applies to same-sex um, attraction. Uh, I want to remind you the context of this report. Um, five, five years ago, six years ago, uh, was they were asking for a, a report specifically for the main um, cultural topic of the day, which was at that time same-sex attraction. These same things can be applied to, as they mentioned, heterosexual sins, uh, can be applied to transgender desires and other uh, any other sexual sins. So um, I know that this statement that we just read has emphasized that desire in uh, homosexual attraction, and it is absolutely applicable to that, but it is also more widely applicable than that. I'm, I'm simply trying to remind you of the context in which this statement was written. So that's what uh, we affirm, but nevertheless... We must celebrate that despite the continuing presence of sinful desires and even at times egregious sinful behavior, repentant, justified, and adopted believers are free from condemnation through the imputed righteousness of Christ and are able to please God by walking in 
the Spirit. Okay. <clears throat> there are a handful of salvific concepts going on here. There's repentance, justification, and adoption. You see that in the second paragraph. Repentant, justified, adopted believers are free from condemnation. Uh, repentance, justification, and adoption are all dealt with relatively extensively in the Westminster Standards. And we can turn there um, if we need to in just a moment. But what I, uh, that second paragraph, I hope you find to be incredibly encouraging. Uh, and I think it, it, it is the gospel in a nutshell. Uh, but I, I, let's, let's focus right now for the time being on that first paragraph on the affirmations here. <clears throat> this is saying that your desires, even if you do not act on them, are sinful. No doubt this drives our minds into all different kinds of raptures. But what about this? And what about that? And can we talk about temptation? Can we talk about, um, I mean, there's so many different again, rabbit holes we can go down, and they are related, and they're not irrelevant rabbit holes. So my question for you is, reading through this, I want to hear from you, where do you say, okay, to hear it put this way is really helpful, or to hear it put this way uh, makes me ask this question. What do you, let, let me hear from you all. Because we began this discussion quite quickly last week, so I'm curious, do you, have you heard it put this way? And now that you have heard it put this way, what does it drive your initial thoughts to? I think when we started discussing it last week, we brought up the Sermon on the Mount mm -hmm. and how Christ himself called, called us out for not just how we act, but how we think. Yeah. So, and he was very clear in a number of different ways, and this seems to be an application of that same principle mm -hmm. that we are responsible, not just for the ways we act, but mm -hmm. the ways we think. Yeah. Yeah. It helps us understand sin is bigger than an action. Sin. We cannot keep sin at arm's length. Sin is very close to us and to our, the core of our being. And Jesus is getting at that with the sermon on the mountain. The Pharisees thought, Oh yeah, if I can just draw all these boundaries, I won't cross into the territory of sin. And Jesus says, no, it's not just out there. It's here. <clears throat> That's good. Yes. I think I didn't find it helpful. I think the the teaching of it only like acting on a desire makes it sinful very much makes it how close to the line I can I get before mm -hmm. something becomes sinful mm -hmm. and just thinking of what can I get away with instead of mm -hmm. how can I try to be holy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think growing up like a lot of times it's I think things like this are more explained that way maybe to make it seem less complicated but I think teaching that the desire is also sinful I mean, helps you probably address the issue at like the root of it instead of just trying to treat like a symptom of action. Um, because I think if you just treat symptoms, it doesn't really nothing. I think in the end, like really kind of changes. You just kind of struggling with things for longer, mm -hmm. um, and as opposed to trying to get to the root of it yeah. early on. That's good. Yeah, the the symptom versus disease issue is helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, realizing ultimately that the symptoms and the disease are only cured through Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, and reminding us to keep driving us back to that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and give you a little uh, spoiler here. As you start thinking, um, next statement is uh, called uh, concupiscence, which deals with the Catholic understanding um, of 
the, the desire to sin versus sinning itself versus the act versus the act of sinning. And then the next statement is directly it's it's called temptation. So it starts parsing out the differences in temptation. So my mind started running down some of those trails. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm curious to you to hear from you. Um, does this raise questions about how you understand temptation, how you understand um, act of sinning? I mean, do we just say, well, if you thought it and you're already sinful, go ahead and act on it? Of course not. We say, oh, you've already desired it, you're sinful, go ahead and take it. Absolutely not. Christians ought to be encouraged to continue. Even if the sin has um, risen up in the heart, do not let it rise up into your hands. Um, we are to to kill sin as often as we can. So, But to call it sin as it's risen up in our heart is helpful for me. Uh, because it was confusing for me growing up. And I'm not saying my church taught me this. I'm just saying generally the things that I heard from uh, Christian culture where it's, you know, it's okay to want sin as long as you don't take it. It's okay to have sinful desires as long as you don't act on it. And, and I think that probably did more damage than good for me in my understanding of what sanctification is. Um, it, it changed, it, it made me think, oh, maybe my sanctification is just in how I outwardly live. And maybe if I live holy, that'll change my heart. Sometimes, sure, but it has to be a heart transformation too and a desire transformation. So this is saying that desire, whatever direction that goes, is sinful. Correct. Sexual. Un- ungodly uh, Desires, yes. Right. So yeah. you use the example of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus referred to lust, not desire. So desire went a direction. Um, and it's always unfair to use the example of Jesus, but I have to. So Jesus was a 33-year-old male who never experienced sexual desire. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. He was a sinless, he's a sinless Savior. I mean, that's a... You know, this is talking about desire for an illicit end. Yeah, I think we have to be... You know, out of the context. Yeah, we have to be careful uh, and say, Jesus absolutely did not have a single sinful sexual desire. Not a single one. Right. <laughs> so you're then saying from the state that he never had a sexual desire, period, because... Um, The desire, as well as the action, is sinful. I understand that Jesus never had a sexual, an illicit sexual desire. But this seems to say that any sexual desire in a 14-year-old or a 33-year-old that's not married is sinful. Jesus never... Whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. Jesus never looked at a woman lustfully. Jesus never was discontent with where he was in his life as a human being sexually. So I suppose the question then, is there a difference between lustfully and simply sexual desire? I think lust is by definition sinful. Yeah. Not all sexual desire is sinful. Because because the context of heterosexual marriage is there is sexual desire that is good and proper. Jesus was never in a place to, uh, of course, to to have sexual relations like that would have been entirely inappropriate in in many levels. Uh, but um, 
I can say with certainty that for his 33 years, he, he never stumbled in his sexual desires. So then there is a difference between sexual desire and illicit sexual desire. Absolutely. Okay. Because this sounds different than that. Not all sexual desires are wrong. I, I, because that's why marriage is such a gift. No, I mean, for Je- <laughs> so Jesus is not married. And we know he didn't lust. We know he didn't have an inappropriate right. sexual desire. Yeah. So and you're saying he never had a sexual desire of any kind because he was never married. So... Um, I think it would be helpful for us if we used the terms here that come in chapter or in statement six. Let me go ahead and pull this out and read it for you. <laughs> because Jesus was tempted, right, by Satan. So there is here, while our goal is the weakening and lessening of internal temptations to sin. Christians should feel their greatest responsibility. Um, No, I'm sorry, that is not it. Okay. First, the top half here. There are some temptations God gives us in the form of morally neutral trials and other temptations God never gives us because they arise from within as morally illicit desires. When temptations come from without... The temptation itself is not sin unless we enter into the temptation. So entering into the temptation is distinct from the temptation rising against us. Um, But when the temptation arises from within, it is our own act and is rightly called sin. So Jesus never had a sinful temptation rise up from within him that he had to fight. All temptations for Jesus came from outside. Yes. I guess the sexual desire at not being a sin for like a single person, would that be the generic, like, I want to be married rather than live life as a single, like the desire to have that type of relationship, but not necessarily lusting after an individual? I think that's, I think that can be, uh, we could definitely, I could get on board with that Um, because it is good for, for man to want to marry a woman and woman to want to marry a man. That is a desire God has given, but that very quickly turns into either selfish desire or an overly specific sexual lustful desire, or um, we we very quickly turn that into selfish ends, and uh, that largely and often arises from discontentment. And so, um, yeah, I'll I'll pause there because you have something to say about it. Well, kind of building on both both of them say so would attraction then also be hand in hand with lust like is being attracted to someone then considered a sexual desire or a sin that's a good question i those terms are used so fluidly i don't want to necessarily go ahead and just define that for you right now it's it's a good question and i understand where the question is coming from but i i don't know that i can say that without stepping into sketchy territory. Do you have a helpful way to think about it? Well, I'm just, uh, maybe this clears a little bit. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians, this is 10, 5. And he's talking about taking, so that's an act, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, where, how soon do we take that thought captive and give it to Christ? 
and, and how much do we dwell on that thought before we do that is, I think, where we get in trouble as humans. I think that's good. Um, and I think very practically, that's right. That's what Christians need to do is think, okay, if I have, I have just encountered an ungodly desire, right? Is that sin? Well, if it's from without and we've not entered into it and engaged with it, it's not necessarily sinful. But if it is a longing that we have entered into, we say, oh, I'm tempted. And now it's something I long for. And we, we let it take our heart captive. We have entered into sin, even if we've not done anything with our hands. And so, but the, the point is for a Christian, when you, when you encounter that and when you see that ungodly desire, whether it's from without, you either stop it from coming into your heart, or if it has entered your heart, you stop it there from entering into your hands. The, the, and, and then we realize there is no level of perfection in our desires that we're going to reach that will earn us a spot in heaven. So none of us is going about this saying, well, if, if I have that, uh, an ungodly desire in my heart, then, then um, maybe I'm just not fit for heaven anymore. That's, of course, not what any of us is saying, and nobody's implying that, uh, because we have to keep reminding ourselves that in all these things, we are entirely dependent on Christ, and we will not be purified, purified in our longings or in our, um, our actions until that day of final purification and sanctification. And so we aid in that process. We, we act as if we're already there. We act as if we are in heaven and say, no matter where we catch sin, we kill it. Because there are many times we have sins that rise up within us, and we don't even realize we've sinned. Does that mean that we were doomed and we're never going to be forgiven? No, it means it's covered by the blood of Jesus. Do we then go on sinning so that grace may abound? No. I think that's what Paul's talking about in, in Romans 7 mm-hmm. in terms of the, he calls it a war mm-hmm. between the flesh and the spirit. Mm-hmm. And that continues on in, in the Romans 8 too. And um, it's, it, it is every human's battle is, are these desires of the flesh? And it's part of the sharpening of I think our souls in a way that uh, on the on the path to greater sanctification it can be anyway it can also get us onto a path of destruction as well which is that's the battle mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah and, and those verses that, that Andrew's talking about um, Paul talks he, he prefaces that with oh wretched man that I am mm-hmm. right even though he's calling mm-hmm. All the all the saints of the churches, mm-hmm. you know, by saints in, in every introductory letter. Mm-hmm. So he's he of course sees himself as a saint, but is also uh, calling himself wretched. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's quite a dichotomy. Um, now, if anybody knows Latin, you'll just m- mock me for this. Um, uh, I'm not even trying. It's it's the Latin simultaneously just and sinner, right? Yeah, I I, I can't. Remember, I, I've got like one word that I've got in my mind, but yeah, it's it's that phrase from the early church that uh, became famous: uh, simultaneously just and sinner, and that is true of every one of us. And so, I think the point of talking about desire as sinful is for us to see: first of all, uh, we need forgiveness not just for how we act out of our desires, but we need forgiveness for our sinful desires too. 
we need Jesus' blood to wash all of us from the outside all the way to the inside, actually inside all the way to the outside, right? So we need, bless you, we need that forgiveness from Christ for everything, not just outside, but very close to our hearts. The other thing it does is it makes us be not okay with sinful desires. And it, it drives us to say, okay, I, if I'm wanting this and it's sinful to want it, I've not acted on it, but if I'm wanting this, I need to attack my heart problem behind this. Because even the things that I want, even if I can say it is part and parcel of, of my DNA, even if I can say it is tied to the very core of how I view myself as a human, guess what? Every bit of us is sinful from the beginning. So that means even the things that we view as core to us are tainted with sin. Even those things need to be sanctified. Even those things need to be washed in the blood of Jesus, need to be redeemed. So it views what Christ has done for us as much larger that it can reach so deep even into the things um, of our, we've used this word earlier, of our identity. Things that we view ourselves to be, even that is to be washed by Jesus' blood, forgiven in him. More thoughts on this? I just think there's such great wisdom in all of this. It's just such a nuanced understanding of human nature mm -hmm. that every act of sin, I mean, I think if you're grading, like, what's worse, thinking about murder or committing murder, you're going to have to say that the act of murder is worse. Absolutely. Right? Um, but Jesus also said the hate right. is, is murder, right? So the guilt's there, but you're right. The, Jesus doesn't say, oh, if you've already hated him, go ahead and kill him. No, it's not. It's not, and it's not like, well, like you were saying before, it's not like, well, I've, just, I've thought of it, so I might have to just do it. Right? That's not, that's not the conclusion that we right. should draw from that. Absolutely. It's the self-awareness, and it's... Like, like when you're meditating on God's word, it's it's this idea of grabbing onto God's wisdom and saying, where does every illicit act, whether it's adultery or murder or lying or cheating or whatever it is, where does it start? It has to start with the thought. Mm -hmm. You don't just mm -hmm. like like Tim Keller's like you didn't you know you didn't just wake up and be like oh you're not my wife. I mean it's just. It had to start with a yeah. thought. Yeah. What was David's cry in Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart. Right. Right. After he had just done so much outwardly, he's crying out for the purification of his heart. Of course, not downplaying what he did, but um, acknowledging that it is rooted somewhere deep. It starts with the thought. It starts with the love. Uh, it's, it starts before we're born. In sin did my mother conceive me. Right, so we have to realize that we are fighting a battle that is all around us and still has roots within us. Praise the Lord for the Spirit who fights us and helps us to see that and convicts us of those sins. Can you just give me an example? You talked about there's an external desire that comes, and then it goes to the heart and yeah. to the yeah. hands. What's, yeah. what's an external Yeah, let's, let's get to that in... Um, Sections 5 and 6. It deals with that in particular. 
Yeah, so it's uh, worth talking about that. One example that, <clears throat> if, if you're not convinced yet, one example that I heard from an elder at Redeemer is he said, um, and this, this was new to me when I moved to Ohio eight years ago, this, this concept, because I had still thought, all right, as long as I don't act, it's fine. You know, well, we all have desires, you know. No, like, and, and he said, um, it's one thing for me to say, I have an attractive daughter. It's another thing to say I am attracted to my daughter. And he said, well, I never act on it. I just, I'm attracted to my daughter, but I never act on it. No, there's, there's something wrong and sinful about that attraction. That's the illustration he used, of course. Thankfully, praise the Lord, that's not something he struggles with. But, um, you know, that helped bring it, made it tangible for me. There's a difference between um, what exists outside and what we allow to grow inside. So uh, hopefully that brings some clarity for you as well. Well, to, to get to your point, let's go ahead and move on to number five. And uh, this, this may be slightly um, unsatisfying because this takes a quick break, y'all, uh, takes a quick break from the discussion at hand and takes us to the Catholic definition of concupiscence. This will help us perhaps understand where our understanding of um, sinfulness uh, comes from. As Culturally, we have this, this Catholic understanding and really what we've been fighting against in our discussion tonight is the Catholic understanding and let's look here. Um, this report says, Statement 5, We affirm that impure thoughts and desires arising in us prior to and apart from a conscious act of the will are still sin. We reject the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence, whereby disordered desires that afflict us due to the fall do not become sin without a consenting act of the will. These desires within us are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are themselves idolatrous and sinful. Nevertheless, we recognize that many persons who experience same-sex attraction describe their desires as arising in them unbidden and unwanted. We also recognize that the presence of same-sex attraction is often owing to many factors, which always include our own sin nature and may include being sinned against in the past. As with any sinful pattern or propensity, which may include disordered desires, extramarital lust, pornographic addictions, and all abusive sexual behavior, the actions of others, though never finally determinative, can be significant and influential. This should move us to compassion and understanding. Moreover, it is true for all of us that sin can be both unchosen bondage and idolatrous rebellion at the same time. We all experience sin at times as a kind of voluntary servitude. Um, so this does not get directly to um, Bina's question. Statement six gets to that. Uh, the difference between entering into and uh, temptation being without. Um, but this deals with that Roman Catholic understanding. And this simply, that Roman Catholic understanding simply is an anemic view of sin. It views sin as anemic. Sin is just a weak thing. It's, it's not necessarily all that 
bad. It's not all that powerful because uh, what it says is um, the desire, your sinful desires within are not sin. Sin is simply an action or acting on those desires. And so it's a, yeah, you, you know, you're affected by the fall, but that only makes you weak. That doesn't make you bad. And the reformers off the bat said, no, you've got to understand that even those desires, even those things that the church calls weaknesses, even these are sinful too. Um, So, um, so we would disagree with Roman Catholic Church that says the disordered desires that afflict us due to the fall, they say they do not become sin without a consenting act. And we say they begin as sin and they grow into acts of sin. And therefore, we attack both the acts and the desires. So this is a clarifying, if you will, of what we were just talking about, specifically against that Roman Catholic understanding. If there are no, if this doesn't like take us into the next realm of, of discussion, we can move on to six. Um, it it is helpful to take these kind of together. But are there thoughts on this in particular? Yeah. This kind of gets into the um, realm of intrusive thoughts and like I think we've been talking about this along the spectrum Um, and I've heard people explain to me like practically how to deal with intrusive thoughts I'm gathering that uh, something like that is ultimately like symptomatic of sin and identifying it as such is important, but allowing yourself to be crippled by it um, is an issue. Absolutely. And I mean, that's something where, like, they sort of get out of here where the desires are unwanted. I mean, a lot of my intrusive thoughts thoughts are unwanted, and I'm like, this is bad, and I don't like it. But like, it just popped in my head. Um, so, yeah, I feel like. It's been helpful for me to yeah, think about that in those terms without allowing myself to get discouraged by them. No, that's really good because we would become so overwhelmed um, and just disheartened about sanctification if, if we were to let ourselves get crushed by every sinful desire that we have. And if we were to try to self-flagellate or if we were to uh, try to pay for or, or, or let ourselves or if we were to just beat ourselves up for the, uh, the sinful desires we have, like we'd all just stop making progress. And so I actually think the report does a helpful job and takes practicality into consideration, like the heart of Christians here in Statement 6. Uh, it says... Um, Nevertheless, the second parent, we can read the first one in a second. Nevertheless, there is an important degree of moral difference between temptation to sin and giving in to sin, even when the temptation is itself an expression of indwelling sin. Okay, so they parsed out. Right, first of all, there is outside sin, that is temptation. That's what Jesus experienced. He experienced temptation from outside that he never entered into. Then there's also temptation from within that we have entered into that is sinful. But then there's also giving in to sin. And so there's almost three tiers here. And they're saying practically it's helpful for us to go ahead and differentiate these. um, Because while our goal is the weakening and lessening of internal temptation to sin, 
Christians should feel their greatest responsibility for, not for the fact that such temptations occur, but for thoroughly and immediately fleeing and resisting the temptations when they arise. And that's exactly what you were just talking about a few moments ago. We, what is our response to it when we encounter sin? No matter what stage we see it in, what's our response? And I think, Stephen, your comment is helpful. Don't get overburdened and overwhelmed by the presence of sin in your life. Guess what? God has known that there's sin present in your life for far longer than you have. And he sees the depths of your sin far more than you do and still loves you in Jesus. His mercy is more. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Hannah. So building off of what we talked about in, with intrusive thoughts, it, in us especially, it almost brings up a sense of pity for those who, who fall to it. Taking mm. the idea of same-sex marriage, of that is a constant there it's like a constant intrusive thought of hey you should follow to this desire mm-hmm. hey you should follow to this desire mm-hmm. but then they're also being tempted from the outside of hey mm-hmm. you're in a worldview that mm-hmm. this is totally okay and then they finally fall into that third tier of fall into that desire and fall into that temptation but ultimately you i feel pity for them because it is this constant barrage of intrusive thoughts that is pushing them to that. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have a firm foundation in Christ, then they don't have that backup to help them fight against yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. Because the lies from without are telling us that who's the most right person in your life? You. What's going to make you happy? Whatever you want. And, and you're absolutely right that this is... Very practically, that's what people are fighting against. And Satan knows exactly what he's doing to drag people down into that. And he knows how to use all the different elements, those things outside, the, the way that the world thinks, the uh, access to media, the, the heart condition. He knows all these things. And, and so you're right. It should drive us to sadness and, and to our knees for those that we know who are stuck in sin. Uh, and it should drive us to cry out, Lord, show me my sin. And help me to be free from my sin. Uh, and it should uh, absolutely... Yeah, I think all I'm saying is yes and amen. Yeah, go ahead. Um, this might be a little diversion, but I hope not. Just trying to wrap my head around this sort of like spectrum that we're talking about. When uh, God is dealing with Cain in Genesis, like he comes to Cain and says, Why is your face downcast? And uh, beware the crouchers at the door uh, ready to devour you. Mm. So... I'm assuming we're sitting here going, God has identified Cain already in sin in that he is desiring to hurt his brother, Mm. but he is encouraging or exhorting Cain to rule over his desires Mm. and not get into them. Mm -hmm. Is that Mm -hmm. a fair interpretation? Oh yeah. Based, I mean, assuming your interpretation is correct, I think that's, that fits perfectly with what we're talking about. And it reminds us, God still does that for every one of us through his Holy Spirit. Sin is crouching at the door. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. There's reminders. You feel those tugs and you're like, oh yeah, but don't I have to? And, and so, um, yeah, that reminds us to not go the way of Cain, but to take very seriously God's compassionate um, conviction that he gives to us. Let's start at the top of this temptation page, and then uh, this concept um, may carry over till next week, may not, we'll see. We affirm that Scripture speaks of temptation in different ways. I found this really great article uh, that I, I may end up uh, pulling out here in just a minute uh, that started parsing out that what I've 
the terminology I've used so far, the temptations that come from without and then those temptations that we um, engage in in our hearts. So uh, especially I, I started thinking I was, I was reading statement four. I said, yeah, but what about Jesus, right? Because he was tempted by Satan. So um, does that mean that his temptation was sinful? Well, that's what this is getting at. The temptation that Jesus experienced was not that internal sinful temptation. Here's what it says. There are some temptations God gives us in the form of morally neutral trials and other temptations God never gives us because they arise from within as morally illicit desires. And James 1 talks about this. Look at the footnotes here. Uh, James 1, uh, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. While our goal, no, I'm sorry, we're still at the top paragraph. When temptations come from without, the temptation itself is not sin, unless we enter into the temptation. But when the temptation arises from within, it is our own act and is rightly called sin. And you can go read some good John Owen comments down at the bottom there. I do have a uh, Calvin quote I want to get to here uh, shortly. But um, thoughts on that parsing out of temptation? Is that a helpful definition? Do you think that... um, Yeah, David, does that get back to answering any of your questions from earlier? I was never um, at a loss for the understanding of temptation okay. from without. Um, it, as we talk to people, it, it, it's, it, it seems important to help them understand what we're saying. Hmm. And I think that the fuzziness of that notion of desire hmm. it, is what I'm wrestling with. Because there's no question that Jesus was sinless. Right. That's not even a debate. Sure. Um, the question is, do I ever have a pure thought? <laughs> that is, is, is there ever a time when there's a desire that's not tainted by sin? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that then help me communicate with others how to view their desires? And, and my ultimate conclusion is probably what you're saying. That... that it's probably impossible to discern when a thought is is when it crosses from pure to impure. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I can know that. Um, but what the message of the gospel is not you need to sit there and stare at your navel until you decide discern where that right. line is and right. sand you cross over from a pure thought to the impure thought. Mm-hmm. I think that the scriptures more would argue that it, it's just pervasive. I mean, um, the notion of depravity is far more mm-hmm. extensive than mm-hmm. we would ever mm-hmm. understand. Mm-hmm. And so there's not maybe any point <laughs> in trying to figure out that line in the yeah. sand. Yeah. It's only to say, yeah, it, it affects even our desires yeah. yeah, and hence our need for the cross. Yes. Because even our desires are distorted. Mm-hmm. If we hold the Catholic view, that line is very important. And and we don't, which means we can place it all on the cross. Maybe my question is also rising from a debate I heard on the campus of Grove City College where a professor was arguing that desire without action is not sinful. Mm-hmm. And so it was probably more Catholic. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Even though he never would say that. Sure. Sure. Yeah, and I think that's actually very helpful. When does a thought move from being impure to pure? Um, I was, I remember as a, I don't remember specifically how old I was, but a thought that, that keeps running back to my mind is like, all right, if I see something that can turn into a sinful temptation, do I, and, I, and I've kind of kept walking, do I look back, get a second look? Um, or if that thought uh, jumps into my mind, do I let my mind dwell there or do I force myself to move on? All right, so the, the truth is um, my, whether or not my thought has yet crossed into the, the level of active sin does not matter because it grows from sin and it is sinful. The point now is what am I going to do by the Spirit's power in, in facing this sinful thought? And so I'm never going to be okay saying, oh, well, this is just... It's just what I long for. And just then, because then what you do is you let yourself go deeper and deeper into that. And that's especially relevant in this discussion of same sex desires. Uh, because so many of the authors that we've read say, No, it's all right. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. So, so many of the authors that we read um, will say, This is just what I long for. This is, this makes me who I am and I can't do anything about it. And so therefore I'm just going to continue to long for what is sinful and refuse to act on it. Um, And that gets into uh, other various discussions that are are problematic, but we're not going to go there right now. Um, So I've not, yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is I I appreciate what you just said and I hope that this is helpful somehow (laughs) to the questions that you're raising. It's thought provoking. And I think a conclusion that I've drawn is if we um, preoccupy ourselves with whether my thoughts or my actions are sinful or non-sinful, we spend a whole lot more time thinking about sin than thinking about God. That's exactly right. And I think yeah. that that becomes the mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the negative yeah. spin that's yeah. more dangerous. Yeah, I'll go ahead and quote. Aspect, there's two aspects to it, isn't there? There's there's the aspect of feeling bad about your sin and remorse about your sin, but forgetting God's mercy in the whole equation, right? If you do, if all you do is focus on one and you get, because I think Martin Luther got, he got all twisted about Mm -hmm. around an axle on this whole subject and that's what led him to uh, his uh, split with the Catholic Church, but um, it was... Uh, that, that there are two aspects to this equation: it's your own personal sin, but also the God's incredible mercy that you've been given a seat at the table, right? That you are going to walk with Him, you're going to be in His presence, and if you if you forget one or the other, you've you've denied, uh, you know what. The amazing work that God did on the cross. Yeah, and that's good. And ultimately, um, this leads us to the quote from uh, Robert Murray McShane: "For every look you take to yourself, even the looks that the Spirit gives you of conviction, take ten looks to Christ. For every look you take to yourself, take ten looks to Christ. For every look you take to yourself, take ten looks to Christ." And so. Um, I'm going to have to leave us there for the sake of time. And I think we'll cycle back to this understanding, this definition of... um, Perhaps we'll cycle back to the definition of temptation. I'll do a little more reading from that article and see if it's worth bringing in some more. Or we may just move on to to statement 8 next week. So, with that...
Seven, thank you. Yep. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> we praise you, Lord, for the vast magnitude of your grace. We thank you that the forgiveness we have in Christ seeps deep into every corner of who we are. And we thank you that in Christ we will stand under judgment. We thank you that even all those sins that are rooted and that sin that is um, deeply rooted in us has lost all its power to condemn. We thank you that Jesus has paid for that. So would we desire now to live out of that life, out of that spirit, because the desires of the flesh are at war with the desires of the spirit, and so would we live in that spirit. And would you help us by your spirit to do this and to move forward with confidence, with sorrow over our sin, but with great rejoicing ten times because of what Christ has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.